You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. In the Amazon Prime original series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Miriam Midge Maisel is a young Jewish woman and mother who finds herself divorced and her life thrown into chaos and disarray because her husband leaves her for another woman. Set in the late 1950s and early 1960s, in a surprising turn, especially for women then, Midge discovers she has a gift for comedy and becomes a stand-up comedian, much to the confusion and shame of her respectable family. At the end of the first episode of season four, at the conclusion of her routine at a nightclub, Midge says, You know, my father once said to me, If you're going to have a voice, you had better be careful what that voice says. A voice is a powerful thing. It can shine the light on something that is hiding in the dark. It can change the way people think, which can change the way people act. But it can't do anything if you keep your mouth shut. We are blessed by the fact and can be deeply thankful that my guest today has chosen to have a voice. Ari Price is a writer, blogger, and stakeholder engagement consultant interested in asking questions that lead to growth. The author of the blog, Well, Ari believes hearing other people's stories is a powerful way of understanding our own. That is why her work and blog explore race, culture, and wellness through the power of personal narrative. Her questions are as powerful and important as are her profound insights. You can't read her blog and not be changed, both in the way you think and hopefully act. She is here today to tell us her story. So welcome, Irie. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for having me. We are delighted uh, that you've chosen to do this. And so why don't we begin uh, by letting you tell your own journey, uh, particularly your spiritual journey, as that has led you uh, into your interest in blogging, uh, which we're going to be talking about, and, uh, and also the fact that you, uh, you're a pastor's wife uh, <laughs> of a historically uh, large and important uh, Progressive Baptist Church. Yeah, well, I think I'd like to begin with my childhood. I think that's where my spirituality began. I grew up in rural North Carolina, playing outside a lot. We lived on this property that was just like in like in the woods, <laughs> basically. And I spent a lot of time outside. I spent a lot of time in nature. And even though I don't consider myself a particularly outdoorsy person now, I was as a child. And when I think about my spirituality, a lot of it is rooted in that time outdoors, connected with nature, connecting with the animals that we had on the farm. That I think is where a lot of my spirituality began. Religiously, I grew up, um, my father practiced a traditional West African religion called Ifa, and that was the religion I practiced as a child, too. It's a polytheistic religion, and 
I think I, I kind of saw the divine in everyday life because there, you know, there might be a God of metalwork or a God of like tornadoes and wind and a God of the ocean um, or goddesses of the ocean and goddesses of the wind. And so I, I kind of saw that the divine was a part of everyday life. That religion is not part of what I believe now. I eventually moved away from that religion, but what I do appreciate about it is that connection to of the divine to everything in in life. Um, I grew up in the Bible Belt, which was really interesting if you're not Christian, and was kind of turned off by Christianity, honestly, because it was, I think the way that I interpreted it was very judgmental and exclusionary. Um, but then as I got older, I was able to meet more people who could represent a different side of Christianity. So when I was in college, I was like, you know, let me give this, let me give this a look. I remember my mother telling me in high school that, you know, like one day you might want to become a Christian. You might become interested in that. And I was like, yeah, maybe, I don't know. I'm not really that concerned about it. Um, but in college, I read the Bible. I was an English and political science double major and knew that I needed to read the Bible just to under have a better understanding of literature and also global conflict. And then I found that I was like, oh gosh, there's all this stuff in the Bible I didn't know was there because it's it's not a part of the language that I heard a lot of Christian teenagers talk about when I was a teenager. So things like blessed are the peacemakers or um, being welcoming to strangers. Those were things that I had never really heard as part of Christianity. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So let me learn learn a little bit more about this. And so I did and decided to become a Christian in my early 20s. At about the same time, I was dating the man who had become my husband. And he was going to become a lawyer when we started dating. He's like, I'm in divinity school, but I'm not going to be a preacher. I'm going to be a lawyer. And I was like, okay, cool. And because I wasn't a Christian at that point. But then he's he decided, he's like, I really feel called to ministry. And then all of a sudden, I'm like married to, I'm going to become married to this man who's going to become a pastor. I didn't know anything about, you know, pastors or pastor's wives or being a Christian and and then this kind of path opened up for me. So my spirituality now, I think, is reflects all these different chapters in my life. I think it reflects the friendships that I've had from different faiths. I'm a former yoga teacher, so I've I've drawn a lot from um, that tradition. So I think it's I think I've taken a lot from each of the different phases of my life, but also a lot of the people I've been around. Okay. And how are you finding that uh, as an active pastor's wife? uh, You know, how does that uh, bear upon your family experience and your personal experience? I think I was an active pastor's wife uh, in my 20s. Like I saw my 
calling as being very aligned with my husband. I think as I've gotten older, I've really become more comfortable leaning into my own calling as a writer. And I would not call myself an active pastor. So to give you um, an example, there was a visitor at church one time that came to church and um, sat beside me in the pew. And I told him that, you know, you should know that my husband's a pastor. I just like to tell people that just so that if they have feelings about the pastor, they know that they're talking to the pastor's wife. Um, and he's like, oh, pastor's wife. Wow, it's a lot of responsibility. And I told him, not the way I do it. Like, I just, I, I'm not, I don't feel the need to be at every event or to direct the choir or sing in the choir. I'm not particularly musical. Um, and I also have a full-time job, which limits my ability to be as active as I was when I was a stay-at-home parent for, you know, brief periods of time after my kids were born. So I don't feel the need to be particularly active. Um, I think that I think the thing that I, I want my kids to know is that when you enter into a partnership with someone, you know, you may have, there are things that will overlap in terms of calling, just like there are for my husband and me. But there's also, you know, each person may feel a distinct call that you get to be, you get to honor yourself. So I'm trying to live that out. (laughs) Good, good. Because, you know, churches are getting better uh, at enabling that uh, to happen, but, but not always. And, uh, so so you have, um, as a writer, uh, especially you've chosen blogging, uh, as an outlet for that. Uh, so talk to us about your blog. My blog focuses on race, culture, and wellness. And I started it as really a creative outlet for myself to practice, um, I guess, keep flexing and working my creative writing muscles. And it was a way for me to each week tend to my creative desires and my creative impulses. I mentioned that I have a full-time job outside of the blog. And the blog was really just this way to explore some of the concepts that are most interesting to me and that I felt were really impactful to the way that I live my life. So race, culture, wellness. I mentioned that I was a former yoga teacher and now um, I'm even though I'm not teaching yoga, I'm still very interested in wellness, the wellness industry. And all these intersections, these complicated intersections that occur with when you throw in race or think about race or cultural identity. Um, I'm also thinking about wellness as it relates to being a Black woman. For those of you who can't see me, I am a Black woman. And how difficult that relationship to wellness has historically been and really trying to reclaim some of that and think about things like mental health, physical health, self-care, community care, 
and how that overlaps with and intersects with race and gender. Um, culture, I see wellness and race and culture really inter intermingling quite a bit because <laughs> it, things that are happening in the culture, I think, have a lot to do with race. So what's popular, what's being viewed, which topics are being talked about. And a lot of times for me, those conversations impact wellness. So when there are all these conversations about police brutality in, in 2020, like my wellness personally took kind of a hit because it was really challenging to see such an egregious crime against a person be the impetus for a lot of people to start paying attention to race. And that felt really bad. <laughs> and so for me, these, these three topics are constantly in conversation with one another. And those are, that's why I chose to focus on them because I, those are just the topics that I enjoy talking about. Well, so how do you understand race for you? What does that mean? Well, I'm going to start with the fact that the way that I see the world is very much influenced by my being a Black woman. To define race, I actually find extremely challenging, which I didn't know until I was trying to explain race to one of my kids who's very literal. And when I went to, you know, my husband's white, and so to have these conversations about race and trying to explain what it is, you kind of start to see that it's very much a social construct. That's a phrase, social construct is a phrase that I remember hearing in academia you know, as a student. And that I understood, but then I, I don't think I felt it in my bones in the way until I tried to explain what race is to a child. And you're like, this really doesn't make any sense. Um, like trying to explain to him, okay, yes, technically my skin is this color. It's brown. It's not technically black, but I'm black. And your father's skin is not technically white, but he's white. And you may find a black person who has the same color skin as your father's skin, but that person is still black. And just kind of like trying to explain those nuances was really challenging. Um, so I, I don't really try to define race. I think it's something that we kind of know when we see. I think for me, being Black is a combination of ancestry, current identity, relationship to culture. And there's such a broad diaspora and broad experience of blackness that to define it feels really reductive for me so i'm <laughs> i don't even try to define it i think it's for me it's like focusing on the experience the black experience um and then on my blog i i don't just focus on that i but i do write from the perspective of this is me as a black woman as i'm seeing the world well, in one of your, I guess, one of your early blogs uh, was uh, talking about uh, Meghan Markle uh, yeah. and her experience um, and and the whole uh, concept of defining 
uh, race relating to the one drop. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it gets super tricky, doesn't it? When we start trying to figure out what race is or isn't, because in our country, a lot of the definitions of race really have to do with maintaining whiteness and maintaining some sort of standard of racial purity for white people. And that's where the one drop rule came out of. And so it, it, it begat all these really complicated, I think, feelings and ways to to identify people afterward. And now we're in this era where you can be biracial, like there technically, I guess, is not the one drop rule, legally speaking, but we do have some form of it, I think, socially speaking. And so that article is really looking at this exploration of Meghan Markle, where I think she has verbalized that she's a woman of color because she understands that her experience is not necessarily the same as a person who is viewed as black or identifies as black. Um, but she has never distanced herself from her black identity. I think she recognizes herself as being um, kind of, well, like biracial. So black and white and viewed as kind of ethnically ambiguous. Um, and so that article, the blog that I wrote came out, you know, after around the same time she had had that interview. I think it was around the same time. I hope I'm not conflating the time. She had the interview with Oprah and um, her experience in the royal family as a as a woman with Black ancestry. And some people were really kind of coming out against her as being like naive to the fact that she had this Black ancestry and that she was in a, a white institution where people were reacting to that. Um, and I was, I don't know. I just, I thought it was, it was that conversation I found really interesting. I, so I wanted to blog about it. Well, what about, I mean, cause you, you made the connection there's, there's overlap. And when you read, you know, you read all your blog uh, posts, uh, you can see uh, the interweaving of the three dimensions, but um, uh, how do you understand wellness? I understand wellness as, the practice of being well. And so for me, wellness is about mental health, it's about self care, it's about community care. Um, it's about how people of color and women and trans people and um, queer people are treated in the medical industry. It is how wellness is legislated and moralized um, I think there's, again, so many overlaps between wellness and culture, because, for instance, like culturally, you know, our approach to wellness is not super holistic, right? It's very normal to say I'm very busy or I feel busy and I'm working um, beyond my allotted hours at work and I'm busy at home. I think to, if you were to say without any guilt, oh, I spent the weekend just 
relaxing and not doing anything and enjoying the sunshine and connecting to myself. I think <laughs> you might get some sideways views or maybe be viewed as kind of a hippie or a lush. And so um, for me, kind of thinking back to that, to little Irie growing up in rural North Carolina, I think I had a profound sense of wellness and ability to connect to myself and ability to connect through nature that I've lost over time as an adult. And so part of, part of my interest in wellness is trying to reconnect that to that part of myself and also helping people ask questions that might lead them to connect a little bit more deeply to their own wellness practice. Well, you, you, you talk about doing your blog as a, as a means of self-care. Mm-hmm. How is yeah, that? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it was a way for me to really think about my sense of self, my voice, and getting comfortable using that voice. Um, and I, I think on top of that, just having this thing that's, that's my thing that I put out into the world that's really based on what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing, what I'm um, experiencing has been really important to me to take that time each week and say, I'm going to take time to do this. I don't care what's going on at work. I don't care what's going on at home. There've been a few exceptions where I'm like, I'm just too tired to do this. But <laughs> for the most part, I'm putting out content every week. Um, aside from some intentional breaks that I take just to recharge. But yeah, it has been a, a self care in the sense of I'm affirming who I am through this, this written form. Well, one of the, um, uh, postings that you did, uh, spoke about, uh, wellness in relation to the environment. Um, and you connected that with, uh, spending, uh, that, and then you, you kind of brought into the end, the idea that, uh, spending it is, is an ethical act. Yes. Uh, so talk about that. I was raised by parents who, um, like they made it a point to, to support black businesses and small businesses as much as they could. I mean, it's not like we never went to Walmart. We did, especially for certain things. And, you know, the costs were a lot lower, but they really taught me the importance of knowing where your stuff is coming from and who's who made it and thinking critically about some of the marketing that's used to sell different things. Um, and so I, I think there's something about that upbringing. I was raised around, I always call them black hippies. Um, also white hippies too, because just the, the circles that my parents are in, in. And so this idea of like conscious consumption is something that's always like somewhere like in my brain, even if I'm not strictly buying ethically or, you know, I end up with like a styrofoam to go package. It's still like somewhere in my brain. I'm like, ah, I'm trying to honor that. And so I, I do believe that the way that if we have the ability to choose 
what we can purchase like if we can afford to purchase something that's made ethically and sustainably that for me is a choice that i i want to make as much as i can just understanding that i'm doing that partially on behalf of people who can't like you know there have definitely been times in my life where i could not afford to do that like i was just getting the thing <laughs> like getting the the most available most affordable thing that i can but if we have the option to do that, I think it makes it easier for the price to come down for just overall. Like if you think about like the price of a computer and how much that is lowered over the course of its existence or the price of a big screen television, you know, the more people buy it the and the um, more focused those production practices come or become, the easier I think it is for companies to say there's a demand for this and so we're gonna make more of it and do more of it this way. And it brings the cost down for everyone. And you're, you're starting to see that somewhat, I think in terms of sustainability, just more companies making that a stated priority. Um, and so even if it's only contributing a small part to that, I try to do that as much as I can and support ethically, sustainably made, um, things that and also black owned and businesses and businesses that are owned by indigenous people and people of color well you talk about culture uh and particularly that you have an interest in pop culture uh <laughs> yeah. and 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 so throughout your uh blog uh you uh, often make reference to uh different series uh, so talk with us about some of those that have been of, of special interest to you and why uh, they've been of special interest. I love pop culture. I think it's so fun. I think it's one of the best ways to understand a broader culture is, is looking at the pop culture. Um, and so I like all those superhero movies. I love them all, almost all of them. I love to watch them. <laughs> I love watching just you know i like watching prestige television i like just watching good old regular television um i just i think it's so fun and for me i'm gonna it might be a stretch but i'm gonna connect it to wellness and self-care because i think a really good show helps us feel seen um and i and i don't mean that just in terms of like you know I'm a woman watching a show about women, but I, you know, I can watch a show about a man in South Korea and I still feel like, oh man, that's really helping me understand my emotions better. And so that's why I, I just love like art and TV and movies and books and all those things that are aspects of culture. And some of the shows that I'm watching a lot right now, um, Abbott Elementary is one that I absolutely love. I'm a former teacher. And so I see a lot of myself in that show and it's just a fantastic show of um that's just showcasing really funny people and being good teachers so i, I love that show and um quinta brenson who's who created that show was also on the cast of black lady sketch show 
um, I think in the first season, but that's another funny show where you just see like all these black women being funny together. And sometimes it's really weird and abstract comedy. And I, I love that too. I think that's so fun. Um, I will watch almost anything that Marvel puts out. <laughs> and every time I'm like, I'm not going to go see that. Somehow I end up seeing that movie. Um, I really like it. I, I'm especially interested in the way that they've started to incorporate voices and characters from backgrounds that are Black or people of color. Um, there's going to be a series coming out that will feature, I want to say it's first Muslim superhero on screen. Um, seeing they have, you know, they're including characters with um, disabilities. I just, I'm very interested in how they're doing that and making it this more mainstream thing. And yeah, to see how that, how culture kind of is reflected in those shows and then it reflects back on us and how it might change us as individuals, I think is just really interesting. Well, you talk particularly about the Falcon. Uh, oh yeah, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yeah, that was a show. I think it came out last year. I wrote about it on the blog. Um, and what I really appreciated about that show, which is you know it's fun and action oriented, just like any Marvel show you might see. The exploration of what it means to be a black man who is a superhero, who in his day-to-day -day life kind of still experiences racism and discrimination and then kind of goes out and like helped literally save the world and is still coming home and, and experiencing discrimination, I think is really interesting. And that relationship with like, how do you become, how can you be a superhero and wear this or be a representative for a country that so consistently disappoints you, but that you still want to keep fighting for. I thought that was a really interesting discussion and to see that happening in one of the biggest franchises of our time right now. I just, I think that's really interesting. Well, what about uh, shows uh, that are specifically about black experience? Well, I love Insecure. I've got to say, I haven't seen the most recent season because I plan on binging that all in one go. <laughs> um, but that's, I think, a very um, interesting show about young millennial, young Black millennials who are imperfect and flawed. And it's, it's really cool to see that experience reflected on television. You know, growing up for me, I had some of those shows like um, Living Single was one of my favorite shows. It was the show that actually inspired Friends. Um, but Living Single was an all black cast. And if you if you were to look at Living Single and look at Friends side by side, you can see like which characters became, you know, like this, you know, Sinclair became Phoebe or whatever. Um, so I had a few of those shows growing up, Moesha, Living Single, A Different World. But then there was just like this long period where there weren't a ton of shows that were showing um, this really rich black experience. I think Insecure is one that does that. These are not perfect people, um, but they're doing the best they can. And it's really, it's fun to see them kind of in, in their journey over 
the last few years. So I love that show. Um, I mentioned the Black Lady Sketch Show is another one that I really enjoy because it's just so goofy and it's fun and funny. And to see a show that has the Black, um, the experience of Black women <laughs> so hilariously reflected is something that I, I really love. And then um, besides TV shows, there's a podcast that I enjoy called uh, Black Girl Therapy which explores black women's mental health through different topics. And I, I really enjoy listening to that show um, because it's, you know, back to wellness. I think it, it's a really nice encapsulation of race, culture and wellness. And it's just a way to, to kind of remember to be in touch with some of those aspects of mental health that are easy to put off if you're if you're busy well relating to your topics um you say that you have uh on your blog i mean on your website uh you list uh who you call your teachers right now uh, and who are those and why are they your teachers right now so I, it's funny i recently updated that not too much um but I'll go through a few of the people that are influencing me right now. And when I, I mentioned that I updated it and I'm, and I'm using also the words right now, because I think the people who influence me kind of change, you know, as I grow and change and absorb information and I'm influenced by new people, I, I add more people. So I'm going to start with, I think maybe I'll go in chronological order. James Baldwin because of, I think he so incisively describes the way that whiteness and kind of our, our country's desire to protect whiteness harms people of all races, including white people. And I think his, his observations are so keen and incisive. Audre Lorde is a poet and essayist, and I would argue philosopher, who has influenced me a lot of late. Um, her work on self-care, the way that she talks about being a Black woman, she's, or was queer, she's since she's passed away, but she's queer, and though I'm not queer, I really relate to a lot of her observations about um, blackness and misogyny and and how difficult it can be to, to care for yourself in a world that kind of expects you to be a workhorse and doesn't necessarily care about your well-being. And then moving on through the years, Brene Brown, her work on shame and vulnerability has been really um, illuminating for me personally. And in terms of the way that I interact with other people, just kind of leaning into vulnerability more has been a practice that I've, I think, started to hone after reading her work. Um, Ibram Kendi has work on anti-racism, but I've been so, just impressed by the way that he can weave in 
his own personal experiences and his own personal journey to these different topics relating to anti-racism. And also, he does such a nice job of showing how anti-Blackness has beget greater like homophobia, misogyny, transphobia. Because for me, I'd always kind of, not always, but in my adulthood, I'd seen these issues as interrelated. And I was like, but I can't really explain how. <laughs> and he just brings a really good case as to how these are actually related to one another. And so I really appreciated that insight and also just the challenge to think a little bit more critically about what I'm doing with my time and my actions to bring about the world that I want to see for myself and my kids. And then finally, Alok Vaid Minan, and I'm, hope, I'm hoping that I'm saying their name right. They are a poet and speaker whose work on gender, I would say, reminds me of James Baldwin's work on race. So Alok, um, they are usually referred to as Alok instead of their full name, but Alok says also that gender, like James Baldwin said with whiteness, our culture's desire to hold on to patriarchy and misogyny is something that is harming all of us, men included. And they've just really challenged me um, to think about, you know, gender. I, I thought that I understood gender, but then after <laughs> reading more stuff by Kendi and Alok, I'm like, oh, it's, it's, it's like race. It's this thing that doesn't make a ton of sense why we've kind of organized it this way, but we all kind of uphold these systems that don't really advantage us. So those are my teachers that I'm listening to right now and reading. One of the things you focus on uh, in that, uh, in our pre uh, chat, pre interview chat that you uh, said that you really wanted to talk about uh, was the importance of storytelling and narrative and how yeah. that came to be an important part of, of what you're about. Yeah. So I grew up a child of storytellers. My father is a professional storyteller. He told African folktales, still tells African folktales to people of all ages. He's Southern by birth, but has really, I think, a adopted a lot of um, West African culture, Nigerian culture specifically, and really loves sharing that with people. Um, my mother uh, was a graphic designer and also a gourd artist. So she tells stories in graphic art form. And I think I've kind of, in some ways following it in their footsteps, I, I appreciated a well-crafted story. And I also noticed that people respond really well or very viscerally to stories, sometimes negatively, positively or negatively, to stories and personal narrative in a way that they may not react to, say, statistics. And this is borne out by research, too that we tend to be more affected by a personal story, an individual story, than we do a bunch of numbers. So if someone tells you 
I, let's look at George Floyd, for example. A lot of us were so moved by that story, that video, that narrative, in a way that people weren't when you just see the numbers of how many um, people, unarmed Black people, are killed by police. It really illustrated, it told a story, a heartbreaking, tragic story in a way that some people could understand for the first time. And so when I think about race, culture, and wellness and how to communicate these ideas to people, so much of it is through my personal experience Sometimes I'll do an interview with other people and it's about their experience. And I think it communicates issues in a way that brings it home and makes you see how this maybe abstract concept can really affect you or apply to you. And so I, um, I love stories. I mean, you know how much I love watching TV shows and reading books and listening to podcasts is because I love stories so much and I, I just love narratives. And I really believe in the power of narratives to transform people, including myself. And I know this because I've seen it in myself as being transformed by people's stories. Well, I noticed that and you made comment that uh, even though you may be uh, telling someone else's story, uh, it always seems to connect with some personal experience that you have. Uh, yeah. And I'm, so another thing that I'm a former, uh, <laughs> I'm a former teacher, uh, I'm a former journalist, but something that um, I found challenging about being a journalist was this need for objectivity. And I would say it's pretend objectivity because Nobody can be objective. Like we can try to see, you know, multiple sides of an issue, but fundamentally we're seeing a story and we're reporting a story from our own vantage point, from wherever we're standing, whatever experiences we bring in. When we do an interview, like a lot of times you read this interview and it's like, or you read an article and there's these quotes attributed to people and it's like they're just like talking to the air, but they're talking to people and the way that they respond to those questions has everything to do with how they're asked those questions, who's asking them, how they're asking them. And so even when you read an article like in the New York Times or the Washington Post or uh, whatever, I would argue that those reporters are sort of inserting themselves in the story. You just can't see necessarily how that's happening. And so what I enjoy about the blog form is that I can intentionally say, <laughs> this is how I'm connecting to this story, or this is how I see this information, this like data point, re you know, connecting to me and my experience with the hope that as people read, maybe they'll start to ask the question of how does this relate to my experience, you know, as an individual. I don't, I think I'm never trying to like teach anything because I, I just don't see that as my role but it's more like hey this has been my journey I'm gonna lay it out for you and then hopefully something 
in my sharing of my journey will reflect to you something in your journey or make you think about something in your own journey. Well, I like the way that you uh, provide for the conversation uh, as a part of that, that you, that you do what you just said, you tell, you lay out your experience uh, and your insights, and then you invite response uh, Mm -hmm. and that you interact with that. Uh, so that it kind of carries into a conversation uh, beyond the insight. Well, one last thing as we uh, uh, kind of a last question, uh, which is related to the fact that you say that you are very interested in questions that enable growth mm-hmm. and that that bears upon uh, what you do in your job. Um, so what have been some of your favorite questions? the ones that have been most important uh, for you? I think more recently, it's been questions about what is gender? Um, How can I be a person who whose beliefs and words and actions are in alignment? how can I be a good parent to my children? Not by telling them what to do, but showing them how I react to kind of the highs and lows of life. Um, I think questions like, how can I be true to my calling? Those are some of the questions that I've been asking a lot of myself (laughs) um and also just i think one that's been coming up a lot is why am i making this choice so is it a choice that i'm making because it's a choice that i believe i want to make or i believe i should make or is it because of uh i'm reacting to what i think someone else might think these that's a a question that I'm thinking of and then as I'm um I'm 39 so I'm I've become a little bit more contemplative about aging um and what does it mean to become older and to kind of leave behind some of the things that I've been just kind of like dragging along with me, like ideas or, or beliefs or whatever that I've just kind of been dragging along with me. What does it mean to let them go? Um, and what does it mean to age into the person that I want to be rather than the person I think I should be or the person that I think someone else thinks I should be? So those are some of the questions I think that I've been tossing around a lot lately. Well, I am grateful uh, that you ask questions, and I am grateful that you have chosen to uh, have a voice. Uh, Your insights are amazing. Your questions are are amazing. Uh, So thank you uh, for what you do, and thank you for sharing with us uh, today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for telling good stories. (laughs) You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. 
The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.